Hey there, everyone, and welcome back to Season 2 of Beyond the Club. This is the home for making our sports and community clubs more skilled, more knowledgeable, more agile. We want to make your club a place where people thrive. I'm Ben Hook, the sports columnist for the Advertiser and Sunday Mail. My co-host was Flinders University's award-winning researcher and senior lecturer in sport, health, and physical activity. His name is Sam Elliott. He is now Flinders University's Associate Professor. What an amazing new title. Congratulations on the new job, mate. Thanks, Hookie. Same job, new title, but uh, very happy to be here. Things have changed uh, from season one to season two. You've got a new job. I have a new child. It's all happening. How is fatherhood? Uh, Not too bad. We've had some uh, sleeping challenges. And uh, as we speak, I'm going into a weekend of uh, single parenthood. My wife is away in Perth for a couple of nights, so I'm... I'm nervous and apprehensive about that. But no, all in all, very good, mate. Yeah, so she's a couple of months old now. So yes, you've got a new job and I've got a new child between season one and season two. How's things? Things are really well, mate. It's uh, The sun's out, which is lovely, and um, a brand new season full of, I guess, ideas and knowledge to share with our audience. Very, very excited. Excited for season two. And I think what we're going to try and do is add a few more... Game changes in the space of community sport. We're going to be dealing with a lot of CEOs, uh, a lot of people at the top end of clubs who have been real uh, industry leaders uh, right around South Australia, so that we can, I guess, reinforce the message that you're sharing through your research and those of your colleagues. Uh, And so I guess we can get a, a real practical application of that, and I think that'll be something that will get some benefit out of in the long term. Absolutely. And what our listeners should know is that it's not just you and me sitting in a room making up episodes. We listen to our audiences. We survey people in the community. We have an industry reference group. And one of the things that's come out of that is Sam, Hooky. we'd love to hear more about the research, but we want people that we know. We want people in sport, actively on the ground to help us make sense of it. So that's what we're doing in season two. Uh, One thing that isn't going to change, Sam, is our club of the day. And uh, can I share with you my club of the day for Series 2, Episode 1? My favourite part of the podcast and that of others. So, yeah, far away. Okay, so I'm uh, going to double up here. I don't have one club of the day, but I have two clubs of the day because this is a joint venture in South Australian softball between the Walkerville and Glenelg softball clubs. Uh, So in early November, they ran what was called the Breast Cancer Awareness Round. This has been going on since 2010 where these two clubs walked Walkerville and Glenelg played a game uh, in recognition of Leanne Swinstead, a breast cancer survivor. Now, her daughter Erin and another teammate of hers at the Glenelg Rebels, Asher Sloan, thought it would be a good idea to come up with a breast cancer awareness game. And credit to Walkerville, who didn't have necessarily a great stake in that space at the time, said, no, we want to help you and become involved. And so uh, it emerged out of this one game, annual game between Glenelg and Walkerville. Well, this has become an entire round now. So all seven clubs at Premier League or A-grade level in the Adelaide Club's competition for softball embrace it. But there are some beautiful stories within it. So as I said, it was Leanne Winstead, that the Swinstead, I beg your pardon, that was the person who the game was in recognition of her her, her battle. Um, so they now have a trophy uh, donated by the patron of the Glenelg Rebels. Her name is Felicity Ann Lewis. It's called the Swinstead Cup, but it doesn't go to the winner of the game. It actually goes to the player who epitomised the fighting spirit of someone battling breast cancer during the game. 
so this is a merge, as I said. It's not just a, a Rebels versus Cats game. It goes right through the competition. Over the last 12 years, they've raised more than $20,000 for the National Breast Cancer Foundation and the McGrath Foundation. Wow. This year, they're going to be supporting So Brave, which is a non-government-funded charity which supports young women with breast cancer. And that's a wonderful message, isn't it? You know, that's So Brave. Um, it, interestingly enough, um, 800-game stalwart Deb Hurst from Walkerville will deliver the first pitch. Well, she has battled – she's had her own battle with cancer um, throughout the last – four years. She's played 800 games for the Cats. She plays in the D grade, but she's going to throw out the first pitch. Well, she did throw out the first pitch, I beg your pardon, uh, in that game back in uh, early November. So I just thought that was an amazing achievement. And we've all seen that we've moved on to Indigenous rounds and um, Pride Pride rounds, White Ribbon rounds, all of those sorts of things. So the fact that they have kept the flame of breast cancer awareness alight to the fact that these clubs will actually, they've got special uniforms. So both teams normally wear blue and white. Uh, the Rebels are in navy and white, and Walkerville are sort of a mid-blue and white. They both wear pink for this game. So it's a really wonderful celebration. The umpires are in pink. Even the commentators are in pink. So you think about the um, McGrath Foundation test match at the SCG. This is the community standard uh, bearer of that exact same event. So there you are. My clubs of the day, the Walkerville Cats and the Glenelg Rebels in South Australian softball. What an inspiring story, and it's a reminder you don't have to be at the AFL level or the elite level to have a Matty Rewalt round or a pink test. You can do it in your own backyard at the local level. It's inspiring. It's quite spine-tingling because those are the stories that captivate communities. Really, really great stuff. Yeah, so what under the Cats and uh, the Rebels on a wonderful program that you are putting together and all of the clubs that have got on board with it as well. Our episode today is about 12 tips for life as a sporting parent, and you've got all the research, Sam, but we're going to be bringing in Netball South Australia CEO Bronwyn Clyde to assist us with this, and she will be invaluable in this space. Yeah, worked a lot with Bronwyn over the last few years, a fantastic leader, fantastic person, and I can't wait for her insights on some of the tips and the, I guess, the the guiding principles for families that might be starting sport for the first time. Previously, the head of the Adelaide Strikers, and uh, right now, the Adelaide Strikers is one of the top brands uh, from a performance perspective in Australian cricket, uh, both in WBBL and BBL, and now, of course, um, with Netball South Australia. And we're seeing some uh, really exciting green shoots with South Australian Netball. Of course, the competition uh, has been very strong from a, a participation perspective for so many years. The Thunderbirds are starting to emerge. The Southern Force um, won that that second-tier National League this year, which goes to show that we've got some great developments. So I'm really looking forward to hearing from uh, Bronwyn Cly and what she has to say about these particular points, the 12 tips for life. Shall we get her in? Absolutely. Can't wait. Bronwyn Cly, after this. Bronwyn Clyde, welcome to Beyond the Club. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. We really appreciate your company. I just want to get a couple of netball things away. As you know, I'm, uh, I've got a very passionate netball family. How do you uh, assess the season from a Premier League level, from a Thunderbirds level, right down to the grassroots? How was the, the year in netball been? Yeah, it was a great season. We were still a little bit COVID affected, but essentially it was really great to see all of our teams and clubs back on the court, mostly in full swing. The numbers are up, so the numbers that we had pre-COVID from a community point of view are slightly up on from a participation point of view, and from a Thunderbirds point of view, they finished seventh again, but we really think it's a different kind of seventh, so we we really feel like they're building something very special. I'm really excited for next year. Mm. Uh, we might touch on that briefly, but 
I think the greatest thing from an elite level to come out of netball, Georgie Horges and Lucy Austin playing sure. in the fast fives that go on and, and have that massive victory. That was tremendously exciting to see two. And look, we've got a number of young South Australians who have gone on to play mm. national league level. Unfortunately, not all of them for the Thunderbirds, and that's a bugbear of mine. But um, Lucy Austin, Georgie Horges, two young kids, one from Kangaroo Island. What a story Georgie mm. is. Uh, mm. Lucy Austin, young local girl uh, from two of our stronger clubs to go on and play at that level. That must be really exciting for you as yeah, CEO. it's so awesome. And I just think both of those players are huge role models for little girls everywhere. They both worked extremely hard. They're talented. They've got the right attitude. They're both really approachable and down to earth. And I think they should, you know, they should be role models for athletes right across our state. We're super proud of them. Bang on. Sam, um, let's get into the topic that we've uh, brought Bronwyn in to offer her advice on. It's a research paper about... Uh, well, tips for life, isn't it, as a sports parent? Perhaps you introduce it. We've discussed it previously, but just give us a bit of an overview and we'll bring Bronny into the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So often I deliver talks at local sporting clubs about the 12 rules for life as a sporting parent. And these are really to set the scene if you're on this journey with your child in organised sport. Uh, so, Bronny, welcome today to, I guess, this topic and really keen to get your thoughts. Lots of things to unpack here. Uh, Hooky, I might get started on the first rule, yeah. which is this, sample, sample, sample. And what this really is a reminder for parents that early on and for as long as you can, we want children to diversify, to sample and try as many different sports in those formative years. And that is one of the things that I think a lot of parents maybe uh, forego as children get to about 10, 11, 12 years of age. What the research shows is the longer you can actually uh, sample Okay, for, for 15, 16 years of age, um, if possible, the better it will be for some really big outcomes such as continued participation, as an example. And Bronwyn, I'd, I would imagine this is something that you as a sport has wrestled with because if there is a sport that has been adversely affected more than netball by the emergence of girls playing Australian rules football, I don't know what that is. That I imagine that has mm. been a huge challenge for you and your clubs and your grassroots associations dealing with the fact that all of these girls are going, hey, I want to play footy. Yeah, maybe not as much as you think because, as I said at the start, our participation is actually up on mm. what it was. I do think at the moment, though, that what we see anecdotally, particularly in country footy, is that the women and girls don't get access to the ovals, the good ovals at the good yeah. times, right? So a lot of athletes can play on the Saturday and they can play netball. Yeah. So they're not necessarily locked out. So right now we've got a lot of dual coders in netball and they can play both and we support that. You know, we've read the piece of research that Sam's done and we support dual coders where we can. So we think if we can leave the door open and keep communications going, um, they can play both or we might get them back later on. And we see lots of examples of that. Just a question here, and this is for both of you, but is if we're, if we're talking footy and netball here, netball still strikes me as a, a Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon yeah. sport. Until you get to Premier League, I think they play a lot more Friday nights, don't they? Um is, is there still a conflict there between junior footy and junior netball, Sam and Bron? In some communities, yes, but in others, no. So it's hard to give you a definitive answer on that one. I've got a niece who plays netball on Saturday midday and footy on Sunday morning. So I imagine there's still a – it fits reasonably well, Bron? Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. Right now, the, the girls and women don't get access to the ovals on Saturday. Yeah. You know, might it be a problem when that happens? Maybe it will be. Um, down the track, but right now, most of those athletes are playing 
both. That, that's until you get to a pathway. So until mm. you become, in, you know, until you get into the SNFL pathway and maybe play for a um, league club, mm. right now most of our athletes are playing both or they're involved in both. And I've seen lots of examples of athletes trying football and then coming back to netball. And, and that's the question, I guess, for you is if we take the pro netball hat off for a second, mm. do you think young kids and girls in particular mm. benefit from, yeah, we're a netballer, but we try something else here and there? Yeah, I do. We encourage it, actually. And we know that if you play other sports, you know, you're likely to get the physical, mental strength and conditioning skills that actually make you a better athlete all round and a better well-rounded person. So, you know, we think it's great and we encourage our players and participants to play other sports. Takes two to tango, Sam. Just give us a bit of an overview of what you're referring to there. Yeah, another really good rule for parents. If you're at the start of the journey, you'll probably have your own uh, ideas, expectations, hopes, beliefs. This rule is really a reminder that what the research tells us is along the journey, children are socialised, of course, by parents into sport, but parents too are socialised by their children through sport. And so as children develop, as they change their motivations, their interests in and through sport, it actually has what we call a reverse dependency effect on parents, which basically means that parents' own attitudes, behaviours, beliefs, expectations change along the journey as well. Mm. So it's really important that parents understand that while they do have an influence on children, uh, they certainly can pivot and shift with them along the journey. I find sometimes when Sam talks, my eyes glaze over a little bit. <laughs> Ronnie, did you understand what he was referring to there? I think he said that parent, uh, children can model good behaviour <laughs> and then parents can actually learn that behaviour um, and the other thing I would say that I've seen at community level is often mum brings little girls to netball court and actually discovers her love of it again. Mm. So sometimes they end up on the sidelines for a year or so and then think, actually, I could I could play that. I want to I do this as well. So, you know, I know my own club, All Gates, formed a good C1s team out of, you know, mums that have come, bring, brought little girls back to play and then ended up playing themselves. So that reverse modelling is certainly true. I've got a future club of the day for you that it is – absolutely on uh, point with what you're both discussing there. So that, that's really interesting. Um, so just overview that point again for me very briefly. Yeah, absolutely. So parents, try, try and explain it in my language rather than your own. Absolutely. So when you when you take your child to sport, maybe for the first time, parents are in the process of socialising their child. They're developing their child through sport. And so often we think of this top-down model of influence. But what the research tells us is that along the journey, children have an equal influence on parents. Mm. And so their behaviour, their expectations, their ideas about sport will change as a result of their child's involvement in sport. So it really does take two to tango to work through this, this sporting journey. So I just want to, as a parent, we should be cognizant of this, aware of it, expect it and encourage it, bring it on. Yep. Allow me to be exposed to a change in thought process. Absolutely. Yeah. And sporting clubs offer a nice structure. You know, there's often they're, they're good people, they're good committees, they've got good processes. So if you open yourself up to that and come with a generous mentality into that environment, I think you'll get you know you'll you'll benefit from it as well. Sam, point number three or rule number three, tip number three: parents are one cog in an entire system. Don't overestimate your influence. Really, really important lesson here. Sometimes I have to remind myself of this. Parents often feel that their role modelling behaviour, the standards they set for their child, the encouragement with which we use to move children into sport is one of the most influential, if you like, factors that will determine whether kids stay involved in sport. It is just one part of the entire system. It's one cog in a very complex journey, including peers, of course, coaches, the club itself, policy, 
different uh, values inside communities. There are so many tiers of influence. And it's just a reminder that parents actually play a vital role because they're at the heart of the experience, but they are not the only role in terms of determining whether a child drops out or whether they stay involved. Mm -hmm. So just before we bring Bron in, the two sports that I've played most recently competitively are cricket and golf. And I reckon if there are two sports which has the overbearing parent involved, it is those two, cricket and golf. Um, Are you saying, I mean, I would have thought, counter to your argument, the overbearing parent can be a huge influence and often not a good influence. So uh, is that in conflict with the point that you're making? No, I think it it, it is a factor. And it's not to say that parents can't, uh, parents' behaviours can't result in children losing interest and enjoyment for their sport. Um, That's well documented. But when you look at the data on this, when you look at huge samples of young kids in sport, parents are just one part of this environment, okay? Now, if it goes too far, of course, we can see children attrit, okay? Quit Mm. sport, effectively. But along that journey from, uh, you know, toddlers right through to uh, young adulthood, there are so many levels of influence. And just a good example in netball, for example, if cost goes up, Ronnie, Mm -hmm. okay? Or if there is a uh, greater compliance to complete paperwork before the start of the year, these are... I guess, impediments or barriers for some families as well. If you move everything online, that is a barrier for a lot of families. So there are so many levels of influence here. And it's a reminder that yes, parents play a crucial role, but it's not the only role that's going to determine whether a child stays involved in sport or not. Yeah. And I think um, it's important for parents to listen to kids too, because what we see a lot is, is peer groups. So a parent might say, well, I played for this club and I expect you to come and play for this club. Well, guess what? your child wants to go and play for another club where their friends play. Mm. And I think it's really important that parents listen to that because it's way more important for kids to be active and happy than doing exactly what their parent thinks they should. I've got a really good example of that, Hooky. A, a, uh, a friend that I used to play football with, diehard local football legend and has now got a family of his own and his children go to school in one of the, the suburbs that's far from his local club. Sure. And he's now developed friends, this, this young boy, and... All his friends want to play Mm. at the same club. And so not only the child goes to the club, the family goes to the club. Mm. And it might be a rival club, it might be a club that you've had no time for in your playing days. But this is a really good point that Bronnie's making. Mm. Sometimes you've got to listen to your child and Mm. make those decisions, not not without guidance, but make those decisions in partnership. And often that might steer you in a, a different direction or in this case to a different club. Have you seen challenges around that? Yeah, because sometimes the parent has expectations that their child will do exactly what they did. I I played for Tango. My kid's playing for Tango. Yeah, and my peer group is at Tango. Mm. So that's where I want to hang out and that's where I feel good about myself. But guess what? My kid wants to play for Newton Jags. Yeah. So, you know, or whoever. So, Mm. uh, you know, I think it's way more important. I do. I think it's important to listen to your kids in that instance because having them play and happy and confident, ultimately better for your child. Explain that for us in the Bedford Park Bullfrogs versus the Adelaide Airport Ants because... As a diehard of the Bedford Park Bullfrogs, I wouldn't want my daughter playing for the Adelaide Airport Ants. <laughs> what if your daughter said, but Dad, all of my friends at school, all of them are playing at the Adelaide Airport Ants? It's a very good point. Not going to argue with it. <laughs> Times have changed. So does the look of training. Uh, and we've discussed this so many times, Sam, where I always thought training was a, a serious hard slog, that it was an hour and a half of dedicated focus. No one smiled. You know, if you smiled, you weren't taking it seriously. Uh, Bron, do you see that in the way that, in particular, I know your coaches in, at, at Premier level are extremely well-educated. Uh, Jackie Ilman, of course, I mean, she is a genius as a coach and done very well with the Southern Force as well. 
has training changed in the time that you've been involved where you were formerly cricket and now netball? So you've seen sports that have really developed the way they have played the game and therefore I imagine practice the game. Yeah, I think what you're talking about, Ben, I mean, Jackie Ullman and, and you know, the program that Matrix run is very different to the Adelaide Airport Ants, I would imagine. And so I think the days of the autocratic coach who says, you know, hey, you missed that goal, go and run laps around the oval. Yes. It's about making it fun. Yeah. And so it, what we talk about it at Netball, we have a, a program called Not Just Drills. So, you know, instead of a warm-up, it doesn't have to be running around the courts, you can play tag or you can play yeah. golden child or you can, how do you make these events fun? You can add music to it. Um, that's, it's different at the Adelaide Thunderbirds. They're not out, they're doing a version of that, but at community level, you've got to make it fun and engaging for kids. You previously involved with the Adelaide Strikers. Sure. Right? Yeah. Uh, sure. And I, I'm very heavily involved with the Strikers. I do the grand announcing for the women's big bash league. I mean, those girls warm up by playing a game of soccer or, um, like almost a, a foot volleyball, something along those lines. Correct. So even at the elite level, they're making it pretty relaxed and fun and enjoyable experience. Yeah. Shouldn't be hard for 10, 12, 15-year-old kids to be doing the same thing, Sam. Absolutely. Where this rule comes from is so many parents have come to me and said, why does training not look like training when I was a child? Mm. And so this is one of the generational shifts. I think there is certainly a lot of families that understand that um, different methods or different pedagogies of coaching have changed and there's reasons for that. But I still think there's a lot of families that don't understand that. So if you are listening, this is a lesson for parents to understand that just because training might look uh, busy or messy or chaotic doesn't mean that it doesn't have learning intentions or a direction that the children are developing towards. So it's a, it's a vote of confidence for the coaches, but it's also a reminder for the parents, don't panic if training doesn't look the same that it used to. And can I just say, Ben, too, that there were a couple of matches last year that the Adelaide Thunderbirds, they were pr- there was a pressure match. They'd lost a couple in the lead-up. So instead of actually training that day on the Friday before the game, coach took them out temping bowling. Mm. So, you know, that, a, a very a big break in tradition, but to try to get them to think differently, take the pressure off themselves before a big match. I'm, my competitive instinct just shut <laughs> up there. Who's the number one ten-pin bowler at the Adelaide Thunderbirds? Lucy Austin. Okay, right. Isn't she multi-talented? <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's just take a very quick break. We're going to take a message from the Sammy D Foundation. Hi, it's Rachel here from the Sammy D Foundation, South Australia's leading violence prevention charity. We've seen over 30,000 people participate in our programs in the past 12 months. Our programs educate and empower young people on the impacts of bullying, violence and alcohol and other drug misuse by delivering engaging and adaptive and effective evidence-based education. For further information, please visit samyd.org.au. Welcome back to Beyond the Club. You're with Sam Elliott and Ben Hook. We're talking about the 12 tips for life as a sport parent. And Netball SA CEO Bronwyn Clyde has joined us to make sense of it all. We've got through about four or five. We're going to talk about making sport fun and how. And Sam, this is always something that's really pertinent to me because I've been a sports coach and as a player, as I said before, training wasn't supposed to be fun. You didn't do it for fun. You did it because you were trying to get better and it was a gritty white knuckled sort of thing to do. So I was never very good at making things fun either. Just give us a bit of an indication of how you can make your trainings more fun. Well, let me start by saying this, Hookie. There are 82, there are 82 identified ways of uh, what 
I guess, what fun looks like for young kids. And so this is a really important point. If parents are criticizing coaches or the club and saying, make it more fun, what do they actually mean? And it's actually a really hard conversation to work through because there are so many things that, that children deem to be fun. So it's not just scoring goals or being engaged, you know, with ball in hand. There's so many other things that happen outside of training, outside of games, which are also vital sources of fun. Okay. So they might not only be the extrinsic rewards, they might be simple things like positive feedback from a coach. That is a source of fun for some children. Listeners might be thinking, Bronnie, that, well, we do that anyway. And I I think that's fantastic. Can we build on that? Can we identify, can we actually practice all of these sources of fun? How many times though have I don't know, you know, if you've got kids or not, Sam, but how many times have we heard a kid come home and say, oh, my coach said I did a good job today and the pride that they have in that. Mm. And I don't think you can ever underestimate a good word from a coach or a constructive word from a coach um, to somebody's, you know, psychological fun factor. Yeah, it Um, makes so much sense. And is that one of the 82? It absolutely is. Okay, so positive feedback from your coach. Sometimes children enjoy a source of fun in the form of having a, um, I guess, a humorous relationship with their coach, someone they can have some banter with. Mm. Not for everyone, but you need to understand that there are so many ways that that fun can be represented in and through sport, and we barely scratch the surface. So the plug here, Hookie, might be to keep listening to this podcast. We're unpacking all of Amanda Vicek's 82 sources of fun, and um, it would be a really good starting point for all clubs, but importantly, all families. Ron, I'm sure, I'm sure you don't get to micromanage this quite this much, but do you see where there's a coach who is very good at creating a a fun, entertaining atmosphere for young kids. And the kids sort of flocked, not so much flocked to that coach, but that is a group that really stands out as someone, wow, these kids are right into it and they're getting great development as a result. I absolutely do. I said all the time as I travel around to the different, you know, community clubs around our state, one thing you can't underestimate too is senior players taking on young teams because young girls love to, you know, they love to have their A-grade player coaching them. The role model. And they're a little more contemporary in how they feel. So that, you know, you can't underestimate the role model as the coach. I've also seen coaches that um, do extracurricular things. So you remember a while ago there was an MND challenge. I think everyone was encouraged to tip a bucket of water on themselves to raise money for charity. And I've seen coaches that are prepared to come and sit there and have the kids tip a bucket of water on them and just laugh like mad. You know, the respect they gain for that coach and the connection to that coach cannot be underestimated. Both of those examples there, Bronnie, interestingly, are in this list of sources of ah, fun. So one is around yes. coach's role model. Mm. And so it could be the A-grade player. Mm. It could be the senior player that mm-hmm. comes down and gives time and connects with these young people. The other one about the the ice bucket challenge or mm. getting basically mm. um, a, a bucket of water thrown on you. It's another good example of that humour, that, that interpersonal and that mm. very um, personalised approach to building a relationship, another vital source of fun. So if you're listening to this as a parent or someone involved in sport, Let's really understand that when we want to make sport fun, what are we actually talking about? There's so much to this. We barely scratched the surface, and I think we've got a great opportunity across sport to make it more fun. Understanding and appreciating the three-for-one. Sam, I don't even know what the three-for-one is, so perhaps explain it, and then I guess we'll get to Bronwyn to break that down. Absolutely. I'd love to hear your thoughts, Bronnie, in terms of how this works in netball, but I'm staggered by how many times in my research when I work with so many families in sport, how many mums and dads don't understand the three major, if you like, 
benefits of being involved in sport for their child. So number one, the, of course, there's the physical benefit. Okay, I think we can overestimate that sometimes because research shows that children can spend about 30 to 50% of time actually active at training. So we can overestimate how active sport can be, but it's still a benefit. We also know that there's at least 38 psychological or psychosocial benefits of being involved in sport. And the third three for one, okay, the third tier here are the, I guess, the five C's, you know, the development of, of competence and confidence, character, connection, care. These character building traits are also, if you like, um, things that we can expect from being involved in sport. What does netball do to promote the these three for one, I guess, understandings, you know, for your families? Yeah, well, I think in terms of what you're saying, Sam, you're right. The physical benefit is obvious, but the way that you can develop in a club, your club is a safe place. So your club is your tribe, is where you go f- to make friends, to get positive reinforcement. And, you know, you learn leadership skills. And I know a lot of people, even in my own social network, who say they are the kind of person that they are today because they played netball. And they learned all those skills growing up. So whether you're, you know, a captain early, um, you know, made captain, so you've got some leadership duties, or whether you um, are, a, you know, a green shirt umpire, but you're learning new skills at those clubs, which are really valuable for later in life. I'm just thinking of my my grassroots days, Mount Gambia, the South Gambia Football Club, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. with football, also a very strong netball club as well there. Even in the regions, I mean, what are the the stories, the experiences that you can draw on about how community clubs are actively trying to promote the the holistic benefits of being involved in sport to the families? I think when you come to a club and you it becomes your tribe, and then you slowly get more and more involved in that club, and then you start to volunteer and you meet parents and they become your friends. And um, the other thing I really like about it. Um, is that sometimes it's good to get your kid away from the, you know, if they're only involved at school and they only have school friends, it can take the pressure off a school situation if you've got different friends and different things that you do away from school. So it's also good for your psychologically to have different peer groups and different friends. And I think clubs promote that. Absolutely. I want to talk about the challenges, which is the next point about, wearing the two hats of being a parent and a coach. Often this is unavoidable. So you might be the best equipped to coach your child's team. And so therefore you end up with the job. You might be very passionate about it. You might want to do it. But Sam, what are some of the pitfalls that you should be uh, keeping an eye out for? And what are some of perhaps the experiences that you've seen in your time, Bron? So I'll start with you, Sam. Yeah, absolutely. Rule seven, wearing two hats can be challenging. So the pitfalls are this. Parents typically that are involved in their child's sport, especially in a team sport, will tend to um, disadvantage their child intentionally. They'll they'll tend to be harder on them. Mm. They'll tend to um, preclude their child from getting awards or best player certificates and those kind of things because they're worried about one thing. And Bronnie, you probably know what this is. <laughs> they're worried about what other parents are going to say and think about them that they are biased, that they are advantaging their child, that they're being unfair. And so what parents tend to do that step into the coaching role is that they fear that and they go the other end to avoid the criticism that they cannot distinguish being a mother or a father from being the team coach. One of the challenges though, Hookie and Bronny, is that um, obviously there is a child that maybe doesn't have a, a great sport experience that season and it's the 
the child of mum or dad involved in that coaching role. So some challenges there, maybe a couple of options to work through that, Bronnie, and I'd love mm. to hear your thoughts. Uh, number one, maybe how do we help these parent coaches outline some boundaries from day one? Very with important. The club, but yeah. also with, um, with their children. And number two, what can clubs do to maybe train and educate and support these parent coaches who are volunteers. Mm. Okay, so my husband is a coach at the at the local club, so we're we're in this situation we were, and I was talking to him about this, and one of the things he he said is that it's actually it's nice to to do something with your child, so it's actually really nice to be involved with the child, and that's often how you end up coaching, right? Because you come to the local club and they need a coach, and you might have played in the past, so you get sort of roped into these things. And he also thought it was nice that your kids get to see you in a different light. Mm. So they actually see mum or dad doing something really positive and they see them in a different role. But the important thing is that when you come into those roles, you are the coach during that time. And it's what you talked about, Sam, with the boundaries. So that your child has to see you during that hour and a half a week as the coach during that hour and a half. They can't see you as mum or dad and there has to be a boundary. And so I think clubs can help them by putting team managers around those coaches. What advice do you have, Bronnie, for the netball uh, parents who might be coaching their child and they want to give their daughter or son a best player award on the weekend? They were clearly the best player, but of course there's probably going to be some other players that also played well. And mum and dad that watch the game, that read the reports, are going to be basically making a judgment on the coach's judgment. What can clubs do? What's your advice to help parents have the confidence to, I guess, make the decisions and stand by it without... You know, I guess deliberately disadvantaging their child. Yeah, I think it's about boundaries, and if you, it's about the club, the committees assisting the parents in in those instances and putting a set of guidelines in place. And it's also about the coach establishing the boundaries when they start. So I encourage um, coaches to meet with parents to talk about how they coach, what are the rules of engagement, etc. But if you think that your kid was genuinely the best player on the court, you should vote for them because players of coaches, as you said, Sam, are often disadvantaged. So I think it's important to be fair. Some other things I've seen, Hooky, instead of um, the coach in that role making all the decisions on best players, maybe enlisting a couple of volunteers as a form of peer review or even giving it to the players. It might be the Players Player Award that week or that kind of thing. Mm. And if your child really was the best player, it's chances are that that other people Someone else will work it out. Yeah, I think I have seen that a little bit where – uh, the coach gives a set of votes each week. Uh, a, another match official designated gives votes each week, but then someone else is from within the parent group, different person each week, is also encouraged to do votes each week as well, which I thought was a nice way yeah, of doing it. And sometimes the umpires do the best players as well, so it mm. takes the coach right out of the situation. I've got a story about that that I'll tell maybe off air. Uh, now, let's move on. Uh, read the room or read the car ride home. What are you referring to there? Rule eight. This is one of the biggest challenges for families. When your child is involved in sport, one of the great lessons is this. Read the climate of the car ride home because parents inevitably want to give their two cents worth to their child after the game or even after training. And Often, that can be a pleasant experience. It can be a, an experience with no consequence. But there can be times, Bronnie, I'm sure you've heard stories. Um, you may have seen some things. I think I might have um, been one of these parents, yeah, actually. Look, I, and, you know, I've, I mean, I've got two young children myself. I'm sure that I'll be faced with this at some point. 
We just really need to be conscious that although we have a need as parents to provide information because we want our children to improve and to thrive, sometimes understanding context matters. And it might just change the way in which we uh, might change the timing or even the frequency with which we give feedback. It's not a lesson or a, a, a guideline to say, don't give your child feedback. Of course, you parent the way that works for you. And if that involves giving feedback, do it. But sometimes we might be able to tailor that approach. Maybe it's not straight away in the car at home. Maybe it's once you've had time to decompress as a family and you're chatting about it at dinner time or the next day or during the week. Bronnie, do you have any thoughts on that? Has it been a challenge in netball? And I imagine it has. Um, and if so, <laughs> what has been the way in which Netball SA have I, worked through that? I think it's a challenge in all junior sport. And there are some great resources at a website called Play by the Rules. Um, there's a very, very interesting video on that. And if you ever think you might be guilty of that, watch that video and it'll, it'll, it'll change the way you... You act in the way on the car on the way home. I think the thing that we would encourage is it's the coach's job to give your child feedback. And so where the parent can be supportive, I think that's the most important role that the parent can play because the coach might have given that child a different role on that day. They might have given them different feedback. They might be trying to develop them in a certain skill area that the parent's really not aware of. So I think talking to your child and playing the role of supporter and let the coach play the role of coach is ultimately the best advice. Just a quick, I guess, uh, question to counter that, just to get your thoughts on this. Um, what if you're a parent that's played at the highest level of, let's say in this case, netball? You played at the highest level. Yes. And your child is in the under 12s getting coached by someone with, I don't know, not a lot of experience you know, in that role. It's inevitable, I think, that that parent yeah. with high level experience is going to still want to give feedback, even though your advice is well, let the coaches coach, let the coaches yeah. give the feedback. What, what, how do you work through that? I think on the day you've got to let the coach coach, even if you've played at the highest level and you're, you know, you've, you've got to bite your tongue a bit in that instance. There's nothing wrong with taking your child home and on the weekend going out and shoot goals or passing or practicing their skill. But when they get on that court and there's a different coach, I think ultimately you've got to let the coach coach. Otherwise it undermines the coach. We might take a short break. We're two-thirds of the way through, so we've just got a couple more points that we want to cover off. In the meantime, let's take a very short message from the Alcohol and Drug Foundation's Good Sports Program. Hi, it's Ishra here from Good Sports. We are Australia's largest community sport health program, helping over 10,000 clubs nationally to create safe, inclusive and family-friendly environments. Good clubs have good governance. Good Sports helps clubs to develop a strong governance framework. We take the guesswork out of understanding and complying with legal requirements such as smoking, alcohol and drug risk management so you can be confident your club has all the bases covered. Good Sports is free for all community sports clubs. To learn more, head to goodsports.com.au. Thanks for your company on Beyond the Club. Ben Hook and Sam Elliott with you. We have Bronwyn Clyde. She is the CEO of Netball South Australia. She is cutting through all of Sam's professor speak. We're talking about the 12 rules for life as a sporting parent. We're two-thirds of the way through. We're going to talk about riding the wave together, understanding that meaning and motives change over time. So I guess that's just simply identifying that your kid's uh, motives and interests in sport are going to change and you need to adapt with them. Absolutely. And I'll give you two examples here, Bronnie, to maybe work from. Number one, a child may suddenly find themselves at some point in their development as a dual career athlete. They may be very good academically, 
And suddenly they're in this talent pathway as a young athlete. So that can be a challenge and it can change the meaning of sport for not only the child, but also for the family, okay? Because it could be a different mm-hmm. way in which they invest their time. Another example might be the child that maybe got out of the blocks in their development and then suddenly along the journey, maybe they're deselected, maybe they're demoted, maybe they don't make the team and they've got to come back to the local level. Another challenge for the child and of course the family. So riding the wave together and navigating those challenges along the journey is a really key skill, important rule for families. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's very important to be talking about that kind of stuff. I know in the, in the netball pathways, we will sometimes hold players back a little bit. So a parent will often think, well, my child is a star and they're in the 17s and then they made the 19s. The next step is that they should be a Thunderbird. We might, they may get deselected, you know, over the ensuing years, but we try and stay in contact with that child to say, well, that's okay. You know, they might not be growing at the same pace or they might not be developing at the same place. It doesn't mean they won't be a star. It's just about working out where they are now and keeping communication so that, you know, the, the, Athletes not demotivated, and mum and dad have the skills to manage the, the child through that. Absolutely. And I love the analogy of the wave hooky mm. because inevitably there is a potential for it to crash, mm. but there's also a potential for it to build again. Okay. And so I think the idea is just ride this journey with them through the highs and the lows. And I think that whether it be promotion or deselection, mm. or whether it be suddenly it becomes a much more stressful experience because, hey, you're in year 12 obviously a lot of time investment with your school commitments, but mm. sport might also be amplifying mm. as well. So it's just understanding those pressures and working with uh, your child as a family. Yeah, netball, I reckon there's some unique challenges as well because you might have a young girl who's, say, 10, and she's one of the tallest in the team and she plays goal shooter, and you would know mm. full well, Brom, that if you're, by the time you're 15, you haven't really grown much taller in height. I mean... Most of the top-end teams are looking for goal shooters who are 6'3", 6'4". I mean, those girls are absolute giants. Lucy Austin's a classic example of a particularly tall young girl. And Georgie Horgis, who we were just talking about as well. Is the opposite example. Well. Yeah, she's a, but she's yeah. just so supremely talented that she sort of avoids or you know negotiates around yeah. her lack of height. Yeah, but with a Georgie, I think coaches were talking to her early about, about you know, being redeployed as a wing attack. Mm, mm. So, you know, maybe she... You know, may, maybe she won't be a goal shooter, mm. but she's talented and we know that. So resetting her expectations and working with mum and dad and, and working with her over the years to try to make sure she develops in the right areas to give her the best chance of success. And it's no different at a local level. Mm. I love that. I love that there was maybe some early conversation rather than getting to the end of your development and now, hey, you might become a wing attack. Mm. I think some of that preempting and some of that uh, engagement early is really the key there to, mm. I guess, onboarding family support. This is a massive point, point number nine. Know your trigger sport is stressful. We've all seen a parent that has been triggered for whatever reason. How how can clubs and therefore parents manage such a significant challenge? Rule 10, hooky, not rule nine, but uh, I'm with you there. So, yes, identify the stresses. Sport is an emotional space for a lot of people, especially parents. And so I think the lesson here, the rule is for parents, if you're going to enroll your child into sport, you are also enrolling yourself into the journey. So know what the organizational demands are or the stresses are, what some of the competitive stresses might be. It could be poor umpiring in your eyes. It could be a lack of opportunity. It could be disagreeing with the coaches. Lots of things that might be happening there. There could also be some developmental challenges as well. As I said, if you are suddenly a a cross-code athlete and you're trying to commit your sport to or your time to multiple sports, that can be a challenge, Bronnie. So one of the things that we see in the literature 
future might be. If you are one of those parents that are easily triggered in these environments, you might want to think about in this moment, is this comparable to some of the more significant life events that have been happening or have happened previously? And often that's a way of reducing the feeling of that anxiety in that moment. Another strategy might be, hey, if you are in a two-parent home, maybe, Ronnie, you go one week. I'll go the next week. And mm-hmm. it's a way of literally halving your exposure to these stressful environments. What mm-hmm. kind of things have you seen work well in netball to help families manage the stress of being a parent? <laughs> uh, I think I think really it's about a relationship with a coach. So it's about coach really outlining the boundaries from the get-go. And I see a lot of um, – I see a lot of instances of parent stress. So particularly around if you've, this came up earlier, if you've been a player in the past and you think you know the rules better than the umpire or you think you know what players should be doing, you know, they are triggers that we see. Um, and or we see sometimes with parents if they perceive that one of the kids is not as good as the rest of the team and there's a kid that's constantly stepping in netball, um, they're the things that you really got to bite your tongue about because you're role modeling behavior for those kids on the sidelines. So I think it's really important for um, coaches to have expectations and boundaries with players and committees to be really firm about, you know, codes of conduct within clubs as well. Because codes of conduct can be used really positively if they're um, used as a piece of education with parents and players. Other things I've seen work really well, Hooky, is clubs and organisations that engage families very early on in the journey. And those workshops or those sessions are really designed to help understand the stresses for parents because often the research identifies a range of these organisational, these developmental, these competitive uh, challenges. But we live in a very different environment now. It's it's a post-COVID, dare I say, a, a, a at least a during COVID uh, environment, there are different stresses and and challenge points for families. And I think it would be useful for any club listening to make sure you continually interact with your families and learn from them and and really understand your stakeholders. That then gives you the footing to react and to get on the front foot with supporting them to to mitigate some of these challenges along the journey. It's a nice line and it probably leads us into point number 11. I finally managed to count effectively. Do it your way, but be informed, understand different parenting styles. What are you referring to there? Yeah. So typically there are um, four types of parenting styles. The one I want to highlight is authoritative, authoritative, not authoritarian, authoritative parenting styles. And these are parents who are not only highly responsive to children's emotional needs, but they also exhibit high levels of control. Now control isn't constrainment okay, or constraining behavior, but control might simply be an understanding that there are going to be times when my child has the autonomy to make decisions. There are times when as a family, we make the decisions and that's the balance there. It's different from authoritarian parenting where you are uh, very high in demand. Okay. So you're a highly demanding mum or dad, and you're also very low in emotional responsiveness. So that basically means that if your child doesn't want to go to netball, You don't really want to investigate why they might be feeling that way. You're just going to say you're going anyway. And so it's about understanding what works for you. Do it your way, but also know that the research highlights that this authoritative parenting style. So again, if you are very responsive to your child's emotional needs, but you also exhibit high control, those types of parenting styles associate with children that not only develop faster in sport, but stay involved for longer. So there's just a tip there for parents to understand, do it your way but also know that there is a particular way in which we can be a parent that positively impacts children's involvement in sport. Thoughts, Bronnie? Yeah, so I think what you're talking about is sitting down with a child and actually discussing what they want to do and what 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 might be best. The other thing that we do see, which relates to some earlier points, is 
sometimes when you've got talented kids or they're cross-coders, it's about sitting down with them, I think is what you're saying, and saying, well, what do you want to do? Let's talk about your emotional needs and your physical needs and what, what at this point in your life is better for you decision for you to make and for this family to make. And that can be quite difficult because mums and dads often feel, you know, as a as a I guess a leader of the family and a person that's responsible for the well-being of their children that they will make the decisions. And so this is a conversation well in 2022 what the research tells us is that there is still a need to be highly responsive and part of that uh, invites children, invites, mm. you know, whoever it might be in your family unit mm. into the conversation. So mm. I think it's a really challenging point for some families. But if you're starting this journey, be aware that that type of parenting style, as I said, is more likely for your, I guess, to lead to uh, your child staying in sport for longer, if that's important for your family, and developing faster. I think it's a really, really important skill. The other thing really that, that parents can do is actually talk to coaches about it. So particularly if you've got cross-coders, what you don't want is an exhausted child who's mm. just been flogged at volleyball training and now is going to get flogged at netball training. What is their load? What 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 are they already doing? How can coaches work together to make sure that, you know, the child can do both things if that's what they want to do and not be exhausted. There is a middle ground here. And I think parents can play a role in navigating that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just thinking of uh, a footballer um, who might be at South Adelaide Football Club or they might be playing at the Bedford Park Bullfrogs hooky and uh, suddenly they've got uh, evening sport with the Adelaide Airport Ants in another sport. There's nothing wrong with picking up the phone and just Mm. negotiating in Mm. good faith the way in which we look after the well-being of the child. I think everything we've talked about with sampling and diversifying except... No kid of mine is playing for the Bedford Park Bullfrogs and the Adelaide Airport Ants. We'd never allow. Let's wrap this up. Adapt, don't in, uh, don't decrease your involvement, which is a, a really good point. We and we probably see. I'm sure you have, Bron, where uh, a parent has been a coach and really heavily involved, and the kid gets a bit older, and they the, the parent decides to step back or you know step out of it altogether, and might be a spectator and not much else. How do you how do you negotiate your way around that, Sam? Yeah, so this this is a really important point that's informed by a couple of really important pieces of research. The the lesson here is this that as children get older through sport, we don't want parents to feel like they need to take a backward step because suddenly the coach and the athlete relationship intensifies. Okay. The point here is that you can still stay involved. You just might you might need to adapt the way in which you are involved. So you might be the parent coach in those early years and suddenly you take on a more emotionally supportive role as they start to develop through their sport. That's typically a good way to move through your journey rather than to just step back altogether and hope that the coach and the club take responsibility for their child's development. Adapt your involvement along the journey. Do not decrease it. That's the lesson there. Bronnie, have you seen some examples of parents stepping back maybe too early in the netball journey? Um. I think not necessarily, but I think life ebbs and flows. And I think there's years that you've got time as a parent to be the coach and the water person and the team, you know, and, mm. the, and the scorer. And there's years where you're busy or work, you know, work-life commitments sort of creep up on you. There might be years when a parent says, well, actually, I've been my child's coach and this year I want to watch them and support them. You know, they might have made a higher grade and I want to, I want to be the mum on the sideline this year. And I think that's okay. And I think what well, it's important that clubs understand that and – you know, don't pressure those parents to play roles if that's the year they want to watch their kid play. Like, let that be okay, and they will come back. Keep the contact, and they will they will end up coming back. I think it's a really good point. The club environment, the club culture needs to be flexible because as parents adapt their involvement, we don't want them to just drop and run no. necessarily. It can happen from time to time, but if parents just want to come and watch yeah. their kids play, it's okay. It's okay. 
absolutely. We'll get, you, we'll get you back next year. Yeah, and, and just diversify it a bit. You know, rather than being the coach, you might bake half a dozen cakes for the cake sale at the end of the season or something along those lines yeah, too. I mean, absolutely. I'm a, quite the baker. <laughs> uh, hey, fascinating. 12 incredible points. Bron, I'm going to ask you for what we call as our fast four. So each episode, we just four takeaway points that are simple, practical, and easy for someone to snack on and take away. Have you got four points that you would take out of this episode? I do. I would say to parents that particularly when your child plays a team sport like netball, if you're going along to watch your child play, it's a team sport. So support the team, not just your, not just your kid. Mm, beautiful. Support the team, not just your child. Um, second of all, I would say model the behaviour that you want in your kids. So um, don't speak badly about people. Don't comment on people's skill sets. Don't you know? Don't poo-poo the umpire. Actually, role model the behaviour that you want to see from your kid. I would say to parents that it's more important than for your child to be in the right grade. I often see parents that want their kids to play in higher grades. Grading week is the most stressful week of any sporting administrator's life ever. So, But it's important if your kid is in the right grade, that's when they're going to be the star, get more court time, get the accolades, than playing up higher where often mum and dad want them to play and they're, then they're sitting on the sideline. Mm. So get, get be in the right grade. And then finally, I would say that if you're involved with community sport, you know, come with a, a generous mentality. We are here, you know, we are here to serve the community. Ask what you can do for your club, not what your club can do for you. Sam? I absolutely love that, Bron. I couldn't have said it any better myself. One that I really liked there was that third point. Um, and it really resonated with me because I think a lot of the, the litmus test is this. In 20 years' time, 30 years' time, will you love your child any less if they didn't play at the level that you would like them to play at? And I think the answer is, it's not going to have any impact on how I feel about my child. And often when you zoom out and then zoom back in, it's a nice way to maybe temper expectation and some of that pressure to mm. expect that your child to play at a certain mm. level. So I beautifully put, and I really enjoyed the fast four. Great summary. Your contribution to that is profound. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I mean, I've learned a lot just sitting here chatting and listening to you guys go back and forth in the last three quarters of an hour. Um, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Bronnie. And go Thunderbirds in 2023. Go T-Birds. Right. <laughs> so that's a wrap on our first episode of Season 2 of Beyond the Club. Big thank you to Bronwyn Clive for her contribution. You can access the resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes or by heading to our webpage, flinders.edu.au forward slash shape. I'm Sam Elliott on Twitter. I'm Ben Hook on Twitter. Ben Hook 1 to be uh, completely accurate. Now, you can find Beyond the Club on Twitter. Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, you name it, we are on it. Big thank you to our crew right here in the Flinders Good Vibe Factory. Our producer is Gemma Caven and also our music by Ben Watson and artwork by Alicia Menzel. Thanks for your company. We'll see you next time on Beyond the Club. Beyond the Club.